I put these two words up here for you this week, structure and substance, uh, because normally when you jump into teaching, you jump right into the substance and you kind of overlook the structure. And last week, my goal was to try to give you the structure of the book of Galatians. Now, my goal in that was that we do not naturally understand the structure of Scripture. The reason for that is that we are not first century people. And so when the letter of the what we call the book of Galatians was delivered to the churches of Galatia, they automatically understood what it was, and we do not. Therefore, we often misunderstand what is being said. And so this morning, I want to take a few minutes uh, and try to uh, summarize uh, the structure again, maybe with a little uh, more clarity. And so I want to remind you also that listening to and evaluating rhetorists, what we may call rhetorists or rhetors, was one of the great spectator sports of the first century. Well, we don't do that. We, we hear fire breathers, you know, in our listening today, and, uh, and we hear partisans quite regularly just talk about things, and we, many of us live in an echo chamber and that type of thing, and maybe they did as well, but the point of the matter, if you remember Acts chapter 17, Paul got up and spoke on Mars Hill, many of them liked what he said, others were just like, hey, we like hearing people talk, come again, and that was kind of their their context in life, their setting, their circumstances. And so they were used to that, and so that's why they fully comprehended the very style in which the book of Galatians, or the speech that is the book of Galatians, was written and presented to them. And then I gave a couple words. I talked about the macro context, and I talked about the what context? The micro context. What's another word maybe we could use for macro? Big. big. That was the one I have written down too. The big context. And the micro would be the small or the little one. That's right. We're going to save the word little for later. The small context. And there, how many macro contexts are we going to find in the book of Galatians? One. one. Very good class. And how many micro contexts are we going to find? Tons of them. We didn't count. And if I'd counted, that means I would already be done with my work, of course. And so we also used another, a couple of words actually, but I'm looking for just one. We found, uh, we used another word for what the macro context is called, the theme. Very good. So the macro context is also known as the theme. Man, this is great. Maybe I didn't fail as badly as I thought I did <laughs> last week. Thank you. And do you recall the theme that we gave, that we suggested for the book of Galatians? Commit to Jesus. Commit. Can we commit to Christ? Not the what? Not the Mosaic law. So we'll put law because uh, we forget how to spell Mosaic. Just kidding. And if we, if we commit the, the Mosaic law then we are going to suffer from D&D, &D, Dungeons and Dragons, right? 
you have the second one, that's right, and someone just gave the first one, division and disaster, okay? And uh, there we go. And uh, let's see what we have here. Said differently, if you miss the macro, you will probably misunderstand the micro. Okay, I probably didn't say that very well last week. If you miss the macro, you'll probably misunderstand many of the micro contexts. Okay, now we are plodding through the book of Galatians. So I hope for those of you who prefer not to plod and those of you who like to push through, I hope you'll be patient. I am motivated by many factors, but one of those is a quote by Abraham Kuyper who said this, When we undervalue doctrine, we are advancing toward undermining it. When we undervalue doctrine, we are advancing toward undermining it. And I find uh, historically... That to be true, I think you can go back to the 19th century to some fine theologians who thought it was okay to give in on the issue of evolution, for example, and go along with theological evolution and then just say, okay, we'll give in on that issue and let's just, you know, just hold to certain other issues and now we're paying a price for that. And, and so forth, and we could go into many other implications of that. Let me just say, moving forward from this, if you're still struggling with it um, um, or to understand it, uh, feel free to talk to me later, okay? I go over here, and we celebrate our love feast, and if you're struggling with it, I would love to chat with you more. I do not have a problem Yakety, yakety, yakking. Okay? One more word that I think will be helpful that we discussed last week is the word support. Okay? We talked about a wooden sidewalk. Okay? The point being that the micro context, the many small ones, support the macro. Okay? Those many little contexts that you read throughout there, and I won't delve into those. I'll try to exercise some discipline, okay, which I struggle with. But uh, these many micros support that macro. So if you read ahead, which I, man, I hope you do. I hope you get motivated. Understand that these many different subjects that are brought up by Paul, he is not schizophrenic, okay? He is not jumping from subject to subject for no reason. He is using these arguments to support this theme that we are to commit to Christ, not the law. Otherwise, it will bring just like it has at the church of Jerusalem, just as it has in his own fellow believers and fellow co-workers. It will bring division and disaster. All right? We'll move forward. 
Now we will get into the substance where you really want to go any old way. Okay? Now looking at the substance of the text, we of course jump into what is often known as Paul's salutation. And anytime you look at uh, an epistle of Paul or any epistle for that matter, generally someone will say that that is a, uh, the salutation. Uh, let's see, we're going to go ahead and get rid of most of this because I see my buddy Ann over there. And she just says if she doesn't come to a Baptist church and see alliteration, she is very much disappointed. <laughs> and I say that tongue in cheek, of course. But uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Salute, salutation. And our salutation is actually verses 1 through 5 uh, of the first chapter of Galatians, which Brother Jay is going to read to us in a moment, is actually a summary. Some, two, right? Did I get that right? All righty. Man, I spell so good when no one's looking, and spell check is working on my computer. <laughs> so these, these first five verses here can be seen in this type of a speech, almost uh, as a table of contents, okay? So as we go through these first five verses, you'll see me say, you'll hear me say, Paul talks about this later in greater detail in verses, or in chapter two, or he talks about this in greater detail in chapter four, or in chapter five. Why? Because he is a rhetorician. He's trained, albeit in the older style. That's why he's kind of looked down upon quite often. But he is, he, he's trained in this. There's an art, this is an art form. He had, this is uh, 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 something that they were trained to do. He wasn't just some guy getting up and then writing letters later. There was a, there was a specific style in doing this. All right? And this, is, uh, this table of contents, this summary, is specifically laid out in verses 3, 4, and 5. All right? Brother Jay, if you'll stand up and read uh, so we can all hear... Again, Galatians 1, 1 through 5, please. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, so we'll just try to plod through it, like I said, and do the best that we can. He starts off, of course, by introducing himself as Paul. Now, Paul, interestingly enough, is what he gives himself as his Greek name. Okay? Now, we know that Paul is Jewish, and his Jewish name is... Saul. His Jewish name is Saul, so he never gives us his Roman name, which is interesting, right? We don't know his Roman name. And if you remember last week, I introduced to you someone who is known as the father of the Quintilian school of Redder, 
and his name was Marcus Fabius Quintilianus, which is the normal kind of style of a Roman name. So we don't know what Paul's Roman name was. Well, okay, but, but Paul is a Greek name. So we don't know if he was Paulus Sosunius Apapias. We don't know. But what we do know again is that the Greek name that he has, Paul, maybe a nickname, simply means little. Okay? And maybe Saul big because he was of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, which means he would have been named after the most famous Benjaminite, King Saul. So there's big, right? Saul, big Saul, and now he's little Paul. Okay? He also says he's Paul an apostle. Now it appears to be the first, he appears to be the first one to use this term and may have been the one to actually coin it as a biblical title. And actually, it means an emissary uh, became known later from that term. But it comes from the actual verb, which is apaluo, apalua, apalu, I think it's apalua. But it's anyway, it's in classical Greek, it carries a verbal sense to mean send out. And so some actually believe that he actually turned the verb into the noun and then it became used later in classical Greek. But Paul here uses it as a title in order to introduce status into the Christian communities of Galatia. And of course we believe, and I think we can show later, that this is written, I think, that Galatians was written actually before the book of James. That is probably still a minority view. Many believe that James was written first, but I think it's slowly gaining track that Galatians was written before James, and then therefore Paul being the first one to introduce it into biblical literature. Uh, it also may be intended to establish that Paul is, is not just an apostle of a church, but an apostle of Christ. If you recall, Steve brought this up in his teaching on Philippians, uh, the idea of a capital A apostle and a small a apostle. But very quickly, I'll call your attention back to Acts 13, and I'll just kind of have a, a short reading of it here. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan, and Saul. So he was amongst the prophets and teachers there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, who? Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. And apaluo, apaluo, okay, sent them off. So it appears that the, they were here considered apostles of churches. So apostles of churches, we, we tend to think of them as having limited authority and a temporary commission, whereas apostles of Christ have a divine authority and an enduring commission. So I try to look at it, or I like to look at it, something like this, maybe the small a, okay, and limited, and then the capital A, meaning divine, okay? All right, having a divine authority and so forth. Someone asked me the other day, well, what does divine mean? So what's a good, uh, what's a good uh, uh, synonym for divine? 
We say someone has divine authority. Heavenly authority from God. Supernatural, incorruptible. That's pretty good. All right, I think we get the picture there. So the, the, the reason for making that point is this will have some bearing later in chapter 2. Because Paul will mention that there are, quote, men came from James. And it's quite possible that these men were seen as small a apostles. They're sent from James. All right, that's the church at Jerusalem. So having said this, though, what I want you to remember is that, is that these are this point that Paul is making is a macro point. I'm sorry, a micro point. A small point, which means it, it is the theme or it supports the theme. It's a supporting theme. Paul is not setting out here to make this about his apostleship. Okay? That's not what the letter's about. That's not what the issue's about. Okay? It's simply one argument of many in his case for the Galatians to do what? To commit to Christ rather than the Mosaic law. Okay? He's simply establishing the fact that he has divine authority. Therefore, commit to Christ, not the Mosaic law. All right. He says he's an apostle, not from men, nor through man. So if Paul's apostleship is not from men, then neither is his gospel. So the emphasis being the gospel rather than his apostleship will become clearer and clearer when we realize that he only uses the word four times. He uses it in verse 17, verse 19, and then again in chapter 2. Okay? So far so good? Not, no, not information overload? All right. Now I want to I look at the word gospel here so that you can see in comparison he uses the word apostle just those four times. But I want you to see how he uses the word gospel. It's the word eongelion. How many of you heard that word before? I'm sure some of you have. Eongelion. I was listening to J.I. Packer, Allen, and the reading, he says evangelion, which I found quite interesting, huh? And I'm sure I've heard that before, and it's not helped me. Uh, brings confusion into my hillbilly life. The word euangelion uh, is used by Paul in the first uh, four chapters. Okay, the first four chapters of Galatians. We're going to put the word gospel. Okay, gospel. Boy, that was hard to spell. Fourteen times. Okay, so you can see the comparison there. Fourteen times. Another blaring sign that the major issue is the message Paul preaches is that 19 times or 19 of the occurrences he uses... Uh, let me, tr let me re try to re-say that. He uses the verb euangelizo, which we translate quite often to the word preaching. We would call it evangelism. He uses that word in all his letters 19 times okay 
Ioan Galitzo. He uses it 19 times in all of his epistles. However, in the first chapter that we're looking at here, of those 19 times, he uses it six times. So you can see when you might look at a commentary that maybe is kind of shallow, they'll focus in on the apostle. They'll focus in on the micro. But really, you can see that Paul is most interested in the gospel. He's interested in God's people focusing on committing themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing this book to the Galatian people. He has traveled on his first mission journey with Barnabas. They have preached the gospel to these people. The Judaizers have followed them into southern Galatia. They've planted these churches. The Judaizers have come behind them and they've said, this is all fine and good, but you don't understand. We've got an entire history of Judaism behind us. And if you don't get circumcised and you don't begin to fall in line with the, the, the law of Moses, you have not arrived. Because for them, conversion, remember, when you read the gospel, you'll read about people who are friends of the synagogues. For the Jewish people, conversion was a long, drawn-out process. You had to mar your flesh. You had to change your entire culture. But for Paul, conversion was something from heaven. Remember Acts chapter 9, a light shone from heaven. He looked up and said, Lord, who who art thou? And what did he hear? I am. That was it, buddy. So Paul has planted these churches. Someone has come behind him and begun to sow some tares. So let's look at these verses quickly, if we might, just so you can see how the word euangelizo is used. Look with me, if you would, at verse number 8. We're going to stay in chapter 1. I just want to show you these six so you'll have a a grasp of these things. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven... Read with me the next five words. Preach to you a gospel. That's you on Galitzo. Contrary to the one... Next two words. We preach. To you, let him be a curse. There's two of them right there. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is... Next five words. Preaching to you a gospel. Look at verse number 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel... Next three words. That was preached. Verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that, next three words, I might preach. Verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now, read the next word, preaching. So there he is. He's flooded this first chapter with this issue of preaching the gospel, preaching the news that our commitment is to be to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him supreme. He continues through here in the first verse. We'll, we'll go back to, I'm sorry, this 
first verse still, aren't we? Boy, we're making headway. When I use the word plotting, I'm in it, I guess, didn't I? Let's see. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, I want to see if you can catch this. It's not an easy thing to catch, I suppose. But do you see anything unique in the, this, the, the phrase, this phrase here, that if you're used to reading, you know, the, you're re- reading Paul's salutations, do you see anything kind of looks, looks a little different here, how he says it? It's not an easy thing to catch. There you go. Well said, Peter. The order of God the Father and Jesus Christ. In this letter, he does it later here. In matter of fact, in verse 3, he switches it. And in his other salutations, in his other letters, he'll say, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he switches it. So that's got to catch our attentions if we're careful readers. He does it. Why does he do it differently? Well, there's a couple thoughts on that. One, perhaps it's due to the emphasis on the, his call through a Christophany. Let's think back. In Acts chapter 9, we've already brought it up once. In Acts chapter 9, he, he is called when Christ Jesus himself calls him. And we said it a moment ago that when he looks up, he says, Who art thou, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. Right? And so he is called through Jesus, and then through Jesus we come to God the Father. An interesting thing there, and I don't have time to, to spend time on it, But I said last week about how there's a great parallel between John chapter 9 and the book of Galatians here, how Paul deals with the Pharisees. There's also a parallel with Paul's calling in Acts chapter 9. Paul is left blinded. Do you remember who Jesus heals in John chapter 9? He heals a blind man. And at the very end of that chapter, Jesus says to these Jews, If ye were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So Paul was blinded in order that he might see. And when he was given sight, he was finally able to see and do a work. Something awesome there if you ever want to really dig. Also, Hans Burt says that this is in part because Paul wants to speak about adoption. Through Christ, we are adopted and we all have one Father. Red and yellow, black and white, each one of us is precious in His sight. So Paul, as a master orator, is grounding his apostleship in the Lord Jesus and God the Father, but also he begins laying the groundwork for one God and Father over all ethnic groups, meaning you and I don't have to become Jews to have God as our Father. Can I get an amen? amen. And that's a massive amen. We American Christians forget that. Amen. A lot of missionaries getting a lot of money sitting overseas trying to turn people into Americans in order to become Christians. Amen. You don't have to become an American to become a Christian. All right. And then he gives the phrase, who raised him from the dead? Hallelujah. To quote Bill Witherington, if resurrection has already happened, then the new creation has begun. If you celebrate July 4th, 1776... Good on all of us for doing so. But don't celebrate that more than you celebrate 30 A.D. Amen? Here's 1776. Here's 30 A.D. Or 33, however you want to think about that. 
All right, or even 0 A.D. for that matter. In other words, when we talk about uh, new creation, this deals with the eschatological state affairs. What is eschatology? Things to come. Let's put it in simple words. Where are we on God's timeline? Paul is dealing with that. Are we simply continuing in the old Jewish order? Or is this something new? And this comes out even more in verse number 4, and we won't have a dispensational versus preterist view, my dear friend Greg, at this time. Verse number 2, And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now this is interesting also. Uh, he says all the brothers who are with me. Now we know this is not just Paul's gospel. There are plenty of others who agree with him. Exactly who they are we don't know, but we can certainly guess they are his co-workers. In Philippians 4, he says, The brothers who are with me greet you. But in Paul's other early epistles, like First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, he's careful to mention his co-workers and the prominent Christians by name or reputation. But as we see in verses 18 through 23 later, and we'll go into that later, he barely met a few of the apostles at this time in the writing. So his network and social connections are very underdeveloped at this time. Okay, all he can say is the brothers who are with me greet you and somebody's name is conspicuously missing. Who might that be? Barnabas Barnabas is missing. Now, not seeing his name, we have to understand that Barnabas traveled with him to these Galatian churches. He was a well-known apostle being there on these initial visits. If he could have mentioned him. He would have mentioned him. And realizing that this letter is meant to be read as a speech, it, height, it heightens the level of the fallout that we read about later in chapter 2, verse 13. And this is what is said later, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, most of us are aware of the ultimate fallout between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, right? Now we understand that this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was at least their second major controversy that they had. How many are aware of two controversies? So this was at least number two. So when you think about it, I don't know about you, but I get to that second controversy, which I often would think about as the only controversy, and I go, wow, John Mark must have been a troublemaker. Remember, yeah. Barnabas brings John Mark, Paul says no. Yeah. But we see here that there was trouble in paradise before that. Look at the phrase, we'll move on, and we'll look at the, all of that stuff later, of course. He says to the churches of Galatia. Now, if you have an ESV or a King James, you'll see a, a colon there. Others, you'll, but you'll see that there's clearly a demarcation. It stands out to the churches of Galatia. Now he launches into what we call the summary, the table of contents, and then we'll try to push through there before the red light pops up. Okay, unlike Paul's other letters that, uh, that were written to churches and, or churches that were in cities, Galatia was written to a collection of churches in this Roman province. Okay, there's a, there is some dispute. It doesn't really carry much weight about the, 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 the what's known as the Gaul, the, the Gaul people uh, that were in the northern portion. But that really doesn't make much sense. And you can look any of your any of your uh, maps in the back will show you that these were all 
part of southern Galatia right there on the sea. And these were churches like the ones at Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. Okay, right there in that southern portion uh, that he traveled to. And so Paul wrote this to a number of churches, not just a church in a city. So now what we're going to do is we're going to jump into these next three verses. Did I lose anybody on that little bit of geography? All right, geography is real. You know that, right? When you have to study geography, it is a real deal. So what I'm going to do to continue to please my dear friend Anne... I'm going to give you a little outline to try to hold you together with these three verses to break it apart, okay? And I am going to emphasize, I wish I knew the Sesame Street. Today's letter is the letter. I, never, I didn't grow up on Sesame Street, but clearly, by your attention span, many of you did. Um, but I'm going to stick with it. So in verse number three, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in verse number, we'll just put a V3. We are going to look at, I think it's the soul I have written down here. Yes. I got soul, baby. Ah, the soul of the gospel. We have the soul of the gospel. So grace and peace. Now these benefits, of course, are only available to the Galatian churches if they continue to walk by the Spirit. And sadly, this seems something that they are unaware of after the Judaizers have bumped in. In chapter 2, Paul will prove that choosing circumcision and the Mosaic law will bring division even at the highest levels of Christianity and amongst his closest of friends. But let's not be guilty of something here. When we think about grace, the soul of the gospel, let's not put boundaries, ladies and gentlemen. Stephen, I had this talk. I say talk. He listened, and uh, who knows if he agreed with me or not. But he didn't disagree, so I want to talk about it. Or he didn't disagree openly. Let's, uh, let's talk about grace for a second. I want, to, I want to encourage all of us to realize how great the grace of God is. How many already already have a pinch of that knowledge? Say amen. 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 I want to uh, let me let me just summarize Francis Schaeffer in his book Escape from Reason. Grace restores nature. Grace is restoring. It, there's restoration. How many have been restored by the grace of God? Hallelujah. Let's not put boundaries. I know uh, Gerald shared with me one time about his prayer life and talked about going beyond the promises of God. And I'm not suggesting this morning that we do that at all. But I am suggesting that we not do the opposite. That we not put boundaries where God has not put boundaries. I don't think that God tells us to put boundaries on His grace within these four walls. Can I get an amen? amen. I don't think the us for no more movement is, 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 has been built by, uh, upon the promises of God. I don't think that the grace is limited within the church of ARF. I think the grace of God is on the move and we ought to get on the move as well. Think about John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. When I think about that and I think about Hebrews chapter 11 and the Old Testament saints... And the grace of God upon them. It reads, verse 39, All of these Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, 
did not receive what was promised. Think about these Old Testament saints with only types and shadows of Christ. These are our Old Testament heroes. They labored decade upon decade. Some were even martyred, never receiving the promise. They could look forward through the types and shadows of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, we have the grace to know the Lord Jesus Christ comes, lives within us and amongst us, and the kingdom of God is here. Let's don't put boundaries on that. Let us not have artificial boundaries on this sovereign grace of God. Who knows what great victories God has for us by His grace and through faith. He continues, verse 4, Who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's verse 4. That's the singularity of the gospel. I think way too often we find ourselves and we think of ourselves as walking around in chains. He gave himself for us. Do you not see the voluntary and submissive nature of Christ's sacrifice? Think about what he said. Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death of a cross. That was voluntary. That was submissive. He knew you and knows you and did that for you. And then the next phrase, one that you cannot miss, that truly sets Paul apart from the Judaizers totally makes his gospel different than anything they could say to deliver us from the present evil age. This is an immediate shot across the bow of Paul's critics. His gospel is one of rescue and separation, not one of conformity. They tried to get a hold of his converts and say, Good, we're glad to have you on the team. Now let us show you how we've been doing it all these years. And Paul said, No, I want to let you know that we're here to deliver. God is here to deliver you from this present evil age. To quote Peter Lightheart, The good news is the good news of the new creation begun in the midst of the old creation. Resurrection life being available in the midst of this old world. B.R. Gaventa writes, The Christ event constitutes an invasion of the world. The, resurrection, the revelation of Christ is not simply one more act in a string of revelations. It is rather a new creation. There is no through train connecting the old creation with the new. And as most of us are familiar, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone, yes, sir, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Deliverance. Deliverance. It's high time we quit walking around and saying, Well, I messed up. Shame on the devil. He got me again. It is true that Satan told Jesus in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, I'll give you all this authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whom I will. That's true. 
But read the rest of the story where Jesus defeated Satan. And then later in Luke chapter 9, Jesus gives power and authority to the twelve. In Luke chapter 10, He appoints yet another 70 with power and authority. And then they return and the, the 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 Jewish Pharisees show up and say, Well, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he says to them, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Listen, this is Paul's gospel. This is Paul's confidence. Paul's not walking around thinking that Satan's in charge. Paul's walking around knowing that Christ Jesus sits on the throne of glory. Whatever Jesus meant when He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What He certainly did not mean was that you and I are to cower in a church building somewhere day and night or live in our homes in fear because the world is subject to Satan. That's not what He meant. You say, what about 2 Corinthians 4.4? Satan's the God of this world. Let's read the verse. He says, In their case... The God of this world. That's the word aeon. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Well, if you're an unbeliever, sure. Well, you say, what about him being the prince of the power of the air? Well, let's read it. Ephesians 2 speaks of believers' former life. You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's not you and I. Glory to God. We're children of the King. I won't tell you the story about Jesus having Peter go catch a fish with a coin in it. And Jesus said, we're only doing this so we don't offend, but we're children of the kingdom. So, But I won't tell you the story. Jesus said, now is my soul troubled in John 12. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. A voice from heaven comes out. The people are all stunned. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. You know what the implication is? The implication is Satan can do nothing about it. John wrote his converts, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. He later wrote, Young men, I'm writing to you because you're strong. The word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. James said, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. He wrote the Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The author of Hebrews said, we have tasted the powers of the age to come. It's not to say they're not times of sorrow and suffering and hurt and pain, but it is to bring victory to the pessimistic view of our spiritual condition. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, our labor's not in vain. Finally, according to the will of God and the Father. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the source of the gospel. 
That's the source of the gospel. The importance of seeing that is that there is no duality with God. What do I mean by that? There's some really bad teaching. I don't think you can call it heterodoxy either. I think you almost want to call it heresy. I think you need to call it heresy. It's the idea that the Father hated you for your sin, but Jesus loves you and came and interceded for you to try to make all that right. It's not true. God loved the world. The Father chose the bride for the Son. The place from which the wrath of God from sin comes is the same place for which the love of God for the sinner comes upon his elect. So we see here in this last verse, or the last of verse 4, it says, according to the will of God and Father. I want you to understand, you'll see more of this in chapters 3 and 4. But understand that Father is God's new covenant name. He's your Father. We're not strangers or neighbors, but family. That's why we have the church we have. We're family. Paul wrote in Romans 8 that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Do you realize the Lord Jesus Christ, though divine, is your brother? That blows my mind. I still struggle with it. Again, talking to Alan about J.I. Packer's uh, Knowing God. He brings that out and I just go, okay, I'm trying. Because he throws it in your lap and says, do you live like this? And I'm like, do you call him your brother? And I say, I try. That is difficult for me to this day. I say, I want to bow at his knees. I want to, and I, of course you can do that to your brother, but, ah, Abba, Father, and the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen to what Peter wrote. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You are a chosen race. So much for racism. We're one race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's an old idiom. The world is your oyster. Well, it's not true. Because the world is God's oyster. And we his chillins. So it's true for you. Last verse is a doxology. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Apparently it can't be said any better. So what's the theme of Galatians? Let's say it together. Submit not or your life will be filled with and disaster. Is that the micro or the macro? Macro. And this first part is a summary. And when it comes to the present age, Christ came to... It's a D... That's right, deliver us. Just like your Amazon package was delivered to you. Yes, what is God's new covenant name for us? Or what is our name for God, this new covenant name? He is Father. Amen and amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church 
with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.